I'm a bundle of confusion Yet it has a strange appeal Did it all begin with him? And the way he makes me was Melissa Errico, my 101st guest on Entertainment X. That was The Way He Makes Me Feel from Le Grand Affair's Deluxe Edition album coming out November 8th, this Friday. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about everything she's done before that and everything she may do after that. It's a wonderful conversation spanning years. I'm not going to say many years. And... (laughs) She has been so gracious, kind, and generous with her willingness to share uh, the lessons she's learned in her life and the interactions she's had um, throughout it. So I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did having conversation with Melissa Errico. Good morning, Vietnam! But it ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. To infinity and beyond! Some people without brains do an awful lot of talking, don't they? It's classified. You talking to me? I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. I can't lie! Expecto Patronum! Entertainment X. You never know what you're going to get. We're back. I'm Clayton Howe, and today with me is Melissa Errico. Melissa, thank you for coming here to the Upper West to have a conversation about life. You're looking at me all dreamy-eyed. Oh, <laughs> I'm just, we've had such a, we've had, in 15 minutes before we started recording, we've already talked about so much and how much landscape you've traversed in theater, and I'm just really excited to get into it. I want to start with Michelle Laron, your relationship um, Amour. Um, this is coming out. So this episode's coming out November 4th. Uh, November 8th is the Laurent Affair release. You're going to mm-hmm. be a 54 below, 7th, 8th, and 9th, mm-hmm. 7 p.m. Check it out right here in Midtown. So let's let's jump right into it. What was the initial meeting? Well, Michelle, Michelle Legrand is somebody that, um, that my father and mother... Uh, exposed me to it was the Michelle wrote music in the 60s and the 70s in movies that were uh, considered very sort of sexy and European he was um, uh, a French composer who was very influenced by American uh, musical films like the Gene Kelly's and things like that Gene Kelly ended up being in one of his films and he wanted to see in Europe if he could make uh, musical films uh, that felt sort of American and um, and uh, so he worked with Jacques Demy and he worked with Godard and they were making these fun uh, movies. But the most popular one, which hit uh, hit the moon, really, is called The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. They've tried to turn it into a musical a million times. Les Parapluies de Cherbourg. It's um, 
the most amazing French musical you've ever seen on film. It's bright colors and it's unbelievably curious and mm. crazy. However, it also produced a, a song called I Will Wait For You. I Will Wait For You became a pop song that became very popular in America and especially during the Vietnam War. It became a song, I Will Wait For You, the movie set in the Algerian War. Mm. But this was, uh, anyway, a very popular standard. My father was in Vietnam. This became a kind of anthem in my house. And so as I grew up, I um, was born in the 70s, um, this song was something my father, who's a concert pianist, used to play for my mom. So the chemistry in my house was really where I learned who mm. Michelle Legrand was. This is not music that everybody would know about, but this is music that has been uh, recorded and played at that era by the great sexy jazz artists like Bill Evans and Sarah Vaughan and so on. Um, and Miles Davis. This is the music of that time. It went on to be the music of Barbara Streisand. She took to his music and won many Oscars and sang The Summer Knows and uh, the whole movie of Yentl. So it, it, it had a long Hollywood history as well as uh, uh, an infiltration into the depth of jazz. So it's, he's a very interesting artist mm. that my father was aware of this kind of music, you know, though he was a classic classical pianist he loved his music so i learned it as a kid as a kid i just heard him playing this sexy it is always sexy his music is really sexy affirmative and somehow melancholy all at the same time that's what makes michelle <laughs> legrand him, himself yeah. it's sensual but somehow it's not a downer at all you it's really love making music it's really it's really thematically free because he was classically trained he trained at the conservatoire in Paris and uh, and then became a jazzer and then became a Hollywood star. So anyway, to cut to make this you know brief, this is a person that I met long before I came to New York City to star in a Broadway musical. It's probably my sixth Broadway musical or something. But Michelle Legrand is a part of a different era and a really cool musical era of both French movies, it's called the New Wave Cinema, Nouvelle Vague movies. These are the hot movies that you think of when you think of Fran French film. Yeah. The Great Black Eyeliner, the Super Swank Clothing, those French movies, Michel Legrand probably did the score. <laughs> and Agnes Varda's films, Godard, all the stuff you studied when you studied French movies in college, if you took one sexy class on French film. Yeah. <laughs> so this is that stuff. It goes way back and it's the cool clothes, it's the cool hair, it's the whole thing. That's mm. what's called the New Wave Cinema, Nouvelle Vague movies. Mm. He did that, then he came to Hollywood, became more popular with Streisand, Streisand and things like that. Meanwhile, the jazzers also took to him mm. because they loved the melodies and they could, they could play with them. So all those hot jazzers, the Miles Davis, and Bill Evans and so on. Yeah. That was happening simultaneously. So this man literally infiltrates all these mediums and never did Broadway. So by the time I hear about him right. and I'm in my 20s and I'm living in LA, I've done a whole bunch of musicals. Um, I was uh, uh, post-high society, which we could come back to because I may be People out there are also interested in the journey through different musicals and how you handle um, highs and lows. I've had some wonderful, oh, yeah. had some wonderful life experiences and some really hard ones. And one of the classic solutions, you know, you have to realize I grew up in the um, in the theater of the '80s and the '90s where Godspell was happening, and well, not really Godspell. That was more like the '70s, but um, I saw that. But 
I barely, yeah. barely remember it. It must have been like three. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go see someone get crucified. Um, oh, Lord. <laughs> but, you know, no, I mean, the actual chorus line was running, and I saw it yeah. 17 times. You know, that, I come from that time. Um, anyway, so so um, one of the solutions in the 90s, after done, you've done a bazillion Broadway shows, which I had, and Tommy was running, and, right. you know, I was friends with all those people. I'm still really good friends with Sherry and with, with you know, every, and Kurt and everybody that was a, a part of the uh, Deutsch. These are people, who, um, you know, Anthony Barilli and um, Michael Cerverus and every, just yeah. my generation of the funky rockers, you know, of the, the Tommy crowd, I was starring in My Fair Lady. Um, anyway, so what happens is after a whole bunch of shows, I'll be happy to tell you about them and the ups and downs. It was very common for an actor to go to California just to like get out of here. So I went to LA. For film? You do film to do pilots. You know, you're, you're good at that point. You know, you do a bunch of shows. You have your highs and your lows. And you're good. And you just need a break, right? So you yeah. go to L.A. So it's, I'm talking like 90s. People are doing this now more fluidly. It used to be a little more radical. Yeah. It used to be like theater people going to L.A. Not many did it, but, but some did it. Never to return. Never and some never to return. Actually, yeah, yeah I can yeah. I can I can think of a few. In fact, one lived right behind me, and she's really famous. I won't tell you who she was famous in the <laughs> theater, and then never really became famous over there. Yeah. But 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 I made enough money and stopped, you know, basically. But so going over to L.A. could be a good thing, could be a bad thing. Um, so I was in L.A. and I was working with Angelina Jolie in a movie called Life or Something Like It. I did a movie with Dennis Quaid called uh, Frequency. I did seven pilots. I worked with Spike Lee. I worked with Tom Fontana, Larry Charles. I worked with John Favreau. I worked <laughs> all with the way Ed, around the block. <laughs> I worked with Ed Burns. My, I had. I've since, you know, heard that George Clooney had eleven failed pilots. I think I had seven, so I was working towards eleven. Wow. Because I thought when I get to wow. eleven, I'm going to hit one, right? Magic number eleven. The magic number eleven. <laughs> so you know, I did so many pilots and things. Yeah. I did some of them here, but a lot of them there. Anyway, I was living in LA and I was working a lot in television. And I got my own television series um, on NBC um, with Kelsey Grammer called Neurotic Tendencies. Hmm. <laughs> and I was fired from my own show. Um, because they said my charm from the audition wasn't translating. And I have some th thoughts about that too, because that was a strange experience. This, by the way, will come back to Michelle Legrand because I was in LA when I heard that Michelle had a Broadway musical. Mm. That, so th that was, it that's was, the tie into LA. This is the tie into right. LA because LA was like another weird journey. So I'm in LA and I'm this kind of Broadway something of a Broadway I was going to say Broadway baby but not Broadway baby mm, darling something more. kind of ingenue something yeah. you know I had done my I'd done all these beautiful kind of Victorian shows and um, uh, a lot of shows were kind of got mixed reviews or I got good reviews or the shows ran a long time despite because things weren't as pressured commercially as they are now yeah um, so you could you could run a little longer and um, with a show that's that's you know, moderately successful and um, anyway, I'd done a lot of, a lot of good work in, in New York and I felt, I felt okay about it, but I was glad to be in LA, um, uh, on a adventure, but it always felt not phony, but it always felt like I was hiding 
as a Broadway singer there. Okay. I was always like in the trailer, like, yeah, so now I'm in this TV pilot. Like, this is, <laughs> it just like, I would hang out with Angelina Jolie and just be like, yeah, I'm a singer or whatever. I don't even, I didn't, I couldn't even get into it. She didn't even know. Right. She liked me so much, but it's yeah. impossible to explain over there when you're sitting in a trailer playing somebody's wife, somebody's girlfriend. Yeah. So I was on a show, um, for Larry Charles and John Favreau, where I was a landscape architect, and and people could just see I was like bookish and smart and kind of cute and whatever, and like that they didn't care, like that I'm also able to sing, you know, Brigadoon eight which, shows a week, whatever. Yeah, because no <laughs> you have to do it once over yeah, there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and they don't know Brigadoon. They're like Brigadoon. Right. What is that? So, so I'm living, you know, I'm, I'm living in LA, and things are things are up and down. The Kelsey Grammer thing did not work out. Um, I worked for four days on my own TV pilot. Yeah. I had beautiful long hair all the way down my back. I've always prided myself on this crazy hair, um, which is not very curly for you because it's a podcast. <laughs> um, but uh, the first day of work, um, we had a party, and Kelsey was like, I have this idea. We should cut your hair off. And I was like, okay. And he's like, I want to make you look like a French girl, like from a French movie, like a little smart French. Okay. So mm-hmm. they cut 12 inches off my hair on Robertson Boulevard. I went to the hair salon and I let them cut my hair off. Uh-huh. And um, so I went to the actual first table read with this like cute little hairstyle. Yeah. And I was fired on like the third or the fourth day, but I like literally had no, like they like cut my hair off. <laughs> so upsetting. <laughs> my whole look's changed and now. I like had no hair. Yeah. No, yeah. And the, the, the pilot never went. It wasn't like, the, it was just wasn't that, it wasn't that clear what made the whole entire project funny and they replaced me with somebody else who couldn't make it funny and that thing didn't go. Um, but it was funny on its, on its, on its, in the audition process. It was a kind of a fun plot about a girl from NYU who meets this older man. And it, I'm, I've often had boyfriends who were a lot older than me. So I kind of had a funny sense of how to flirt with a older, older guy, but not yeah. be gross, you know, and not seem like uncomfortable. Yeah. And it was yeah. kind of Kelsey Grammer's story with his, at that time wife who was a younger uh, girl. Hmm. And um, anyway, so we, I had fun with it. It was too bad it didn't go, but also it was really too bad I lost 12 inches of my hair. Yeah. So then I had to meet Pinny, P-I-N-Y. P-I-N-Y is the guy who created hair extensions for the hair bands, like the real hair bands, like yeah. the heavy metal bands. So I go to this guy and I'm like, hi, now I have no hair and I just got fired from my own pilot. Yeah. And I'm really a singer. I like having hair as a singer. So if I'm going to go back to singing at some point, I'd like to have hair. Yeah. So Penny, you, you must look the guy up. He literally had walls, cut. Co- the, co- the walls were covered with all the hair bands and these men just going with hair, like flying and stuff. Oh, yeah. So he sewed somebody's hair into my head. It took all day and hurt like crap. Was this just for living or was this for an audition? This was just because I got, I had to start again, yes. right? Yeah, I had okay. to start my life again. So I, I got my crazy hair back. Yeah. And they, they sewed all this hair and it took years. I did a couple other movies with fake hair. Oh God, the thing hurts so hard. But it's like they, they, they like braid it into the skull. Anyway, so I'm in Hollywood and I did a couple, another movie. I did a movie about a child abuse kid and I played a psychologist who helped her. It was a true story called... Um, Mockingbird Don't Sing, a um, couple other pilots. And then I get a fax from my Hollywood manager. And she says, oh, James Lapine, Broadway's famous Broadway director, who yeah. wrote Into the Woods. Everybody on listening probably knows who James Lapine is. <laughs> or should. I, no, or yeah. should. Look <laughs> him up. James Lapine. James Lapine is directing a new Broadway musical. It's coming over from Paris. Yeah. 
and they're looking for a star and they want to have auditions and can you fly back to New York? Hmm. I'm looking at the piece of paper and it says Michelle Legrand. Michelle Legrand, the music by Michelle Legrand. And I was like, this is like seeing, you know, music by Chopin or something. It's like, is he alive, you know? And I'm mm. like, Michelle Legrand, not even Chopin, like better, you know, like <laughs> cooler. It's, it's sexy yeah. mov- movie music. I mean, it's also from your childhood. Stuff. I mean, my this childhood. is like. Yeah, but it's also, yes, yeah, what I heard in my house. It's, I admire it. It's like vibey. It's like, it's also, it's just unusual. It's coming to Broadway. Yeah. And so. I said, Michelle Legrand, I turned to my Hollywood managers, this gal, this big fancy office. I said, Michelle Legrand wrote a musical. And she goes, I know, I know, I love her. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, I love her. Her, Michelle Legrand is a guy. So I'm like, ugh. So Michelle is a French word for Michael. So whatever. So this person doesn't know who Michelle Legrand is, but they always fake everything in LA. Like they know everything and whatever. So I was like, okay. So I... I I didn't correct her, and I was fine. Whatever, she's not my manager anymore. But um, it mean people do make mistakes. But that yeah. was a harsh one for me because I was like fangirling on this this fantasy of this interesting European guy who's literally worked with the most epic singers in the world. Um, I mean, everyone, Johnny Mathis, everybody. Yeah. Um, and wrote hits. You know, he was nominated for fifteen Oscars, won it five times. I mean, the guy's a legend. Jeez. So Broadway had. A music icon coming. Yeah. So I wanted to come to the prayer circle. Mm. So I got on that plane and I came and I auditioned and mm. I did get the leading part. Mm. What? How many auditions? Was this like a, uh, a I series? Think, no, I think I got it, was it pretty right like, away. It was a workshop first. So I think yeah. there was less risk. But no, I was perfect for it. I mean, All my right. voice was perfect for it. My yeah. spirit. I loved it so much. It was, I was, yeah, it was so, a match made on earth. <laughs> it was a match made everywhere. Yeah. It was in my head. and. So, which is interesting too, we should talk about that, how you imagine the things you wish for and you can maybe bring them. I do believe in the power of visualizing mm. what you want. Like an affirmation. Uh, I do believe in that. I also believe that affirmations aren't enough. You have mm. to do the work and you have to be realistic. Yes. Um, but I am very, very, um, very sure that you need to have faith. You need to have a sight, you know. Well, you're manifesting that this, you know, a more well before you even knew it was coming yeah you that, know, that was like in, in that your way, spirit it's a bit of a miracle yeah in that in that way life you know was was i have so many misfortunes but that was one of my life fortunes yeah. and that's one of the reasons why i'm reissuing the album michelle legrand went on to you know hire me in that musical the same season that i, I saw him came to it and then i got sunday in the park with george mm. and so the seeds were planted for another titan that i would come to admire mm. but you know, one thing that I learned about myself, you know, in the last 15 years, you know, now I'm in my 40s, I have three kids, I look back at the times where I wandered around, I think LA was a waste of time, but we do waste time. And sometimes it's okay to waste time, as long as you're making choices, and they're clear choices. I think you just have to get out of the world of maybe, and just go yes to this decision, yes to this choice, yes to this trip to LA, this mm-hmm. exploration of yourself, this class you're going to take. Um, a, a side job or not take a side job, quit your side job, whatever mm. it is, make, do it with clarity and mm. do it for a while. You know, I, I think everybody uh, gets so muddled about what they're doing. So I, I, I think in other words, there's a saying that, uh, you know, you if you're crossing a river and you yeah. see stones in the river, you appear to be, sometimes if you're stepping on the stones, you appear to be going left and right and you're not going straight. 
but actually you do get to the other side yeah somehow so it's okay as long as you just keep stepping you know yeah. just keep stepping so all right so i did all these things i ste- yeah. i went to la and so on and then i and then but then this beautiful opportunity to come back presented itself and i i did see that um with uh with like love in my heart and i came back and i met him and i got that part planted the seeds with sondheim i did my first uh, play with uh, raul esparza and we did sunday in the park with george the kennedy center and then came back and then starred in the more after mm. that workshop was over that was probably the year where um those two big relationships were planted my dedication to sondheim which is now really solid i wrote did an album in his honor last year and spent the whole year uh preaching and avid uh, pen pals that's the main communication uh, yeah sondheim and i are pen pals that's yeah. true yes and the letters are profound and beautiful and he's very uh, smitten with my writing in the new york times which started two years ago uh-huh. i um have always been a kind of intellectual person and um I started writing. Mm. Um, the New York Times approached me two years ago to ask me what was going on in my life. and What was the uh, reason for them to approach you on that? I think it was because, um, you know, if you jump to this more recent chapter, my life as a mom, uh, I have worked less on Broadway, but I have been guest starring on some television and doing concerts. One of the guest starring things I did was um, on Billions. Mm. And um, I had to do a nude scene on Billions, which is ridiculous to do because mm. nude scenes are not, uh, they're not random anymore. You actually get a contract that says, um, that says what side of your boob will you show, which boob, what part of your lower back. And so you have to literally go through all these different sections of your body and sort of agree or not agree so there's clauses about the crack this and this crack yeah. and this i mean it's unbelievably embarrassing <laughs> oh or seen through a thing a see-through yeah. i'll show this nipple i mean it's unbelievable to the cleavage the upper back i mean i was looking at this contract like you got it so i agreed to show my back um mm. and did i agree to the side <laughs> i think i may have agreed to side boob i don't know um but it all just struck me as so stupid and so I and funny. Yeah. And I did an interview for Gotham magazine where I was like okay, About it. <laughs> yeah. Where I was like, okay, so I'm in my forties, I have three kids, and now I have like this whole contract negotiation and now I have to like exercise and like spray paint my body to be perfect. And it's also silly to be a mom. <laughs> and then when I got to the set, I was expecting the guy I was supposed to be having sex with to be like George Clooney. Amazing. He's supposed yeah. to be an older man, a publisher. And I'm trying to get my book published, this character. Yeah. And, um, and <laughs> it just turned out that it was Austin Pendleton who's in his seventies and who was my teacher at Yale. And he was the guy who coached me to get the role of Eliza Doolittle on Broadway in My Fair Lady when I was 22. Do we call that full circle? So, <laughs> so like even. literally, oh I'm my like, goodness. Eliza oh Doolittle was trained by this really classy actor. He's one of the yeah. great actors in New York City, works at HB Studios. He's one of the icons of teaching as well. I had to sit on him and like do a like sex thing with him. Right, like right. it was, you know what? We survived, but it was so surreal. Mm. And we, we survived by laughing. We survived by knowing each other a long time. But I did this interview and the New York Times, I guess, read it 
And then I wrote an essay about it for Beach Magazine in the Hamptons, where I actually was ghostwriting for a long time, um, just doing things on farm stands and things to help my friend who's the editor. And that essay and that interview, I think just struck him as so funny that I had 30 years to retrospect (laughs) and that now I'm in this point where I'm having love scenes with someone who was my teacher when I was starring on Broadway. Because the whole thing is all, you get older... And I guess people fear getting older, but you yeah. all out there, if you're also young listening to this, you mustn't fear getting older. You have to know that you're going to end up maybe in a nude scene with your teacher, or you're going to end up somewhere where you didn't know you were going to end up. But it's all okay. Like you're all setting goals now, but your goals are going to change. And like life is going to unfold in weird and complex ways. And it's actually quite wonderful. It's like a, it's like when you collect rocks you know one from every beach you've ever been on by the time you get to my age you have a shelf with all these beautiful stones Uh all these different shapes and sizes and memories you know did you like that's what i mean like so it was a wacky this is that's a wacky that's a beautiful example of what was an actual wacky story yeah is that i ended up in bed with my professor or whatever but not really right it was by contract um but the new york times read that i think they just thought it was super funny and They thought maybe I could put my views on other things out there, which I went on and have, have done. Well, the self-tape yeah. one is great. Thank you. That one was really, even the way it starts, though, you know, texting your neighbor, my husband's away, you come tape me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll be, the link yeah. will be in the bio, but yeah. it's good. I mean, it yeah. was like, I saw it, I was like, oh, that's like, Well, self-taping really is a real problem, you know? It's a, it's a real, like, it's a real problem for some people, and for other people, it's really liberating. Yeah. But in the same way that like who are you going to do nude scenes with like our business doesn't ask us what our opinion is of things we have to we have to adjust and do whatever we're told yeah and somehow try to do it with humor yeah and um uh and so self-taping i i'm like my method of self-taping is because i live just outside of new york but not far i have neighbors everywhere um and it's like living in queens Mm. but um i call my single male there's a guy who's not married and he has time and it's like after eight and i'm like can you come over and tape me my kids are in bed and it's all very like seems like we're gonna do porn movie in the basement you know (laughs) and it's so that's how my article starts it's like you have time and he's like sure and then he's let down when he sees the way you're dressed well in that particular audition i had other auditions where i like i auditioned for the sopranos movie and he came over and i was like a sexy hairdresser but then the second time he came over to tape me i had to be a 17th century innkeeper's wife who's really really like a truck like it said she's twice as tall as her husband and you know you know wrapped in unflattering layers of wool Mm. these are like people who live in canada in the winter and they're like wrapped with like animal skin and stuff so Mm. i wrapped as many things around me as i could to make myself look like fat and weird and intense and like boots i tried to make myself really tall because they were like tall as janet mcteer and she's really tall yeah so i like tried to look gigantic left right and up and down yeah and my neighbor came over to do my like self tape with me, and he was like, "Ooh, I had no makeup on because they said the ta- character should look exhausted, and please don't let actresses look good." Like it's the yeah. direction to my agent. So, anyway, so my self tape, you know, experience with my neighbor was not is not always a provocative experience yeah. for him. <laughs> so anyway, that's that's I was just kind of goofing around with the idea that that um, you know we all have to manage these self tapes, and who's going to help us and my eight-year-old kids, they, they, they can't 
they can't read my lines with me. No. Because half the time the children are missing in the scene or the husband is sleeping with the wrong person. One of my kids going to be like, blah, 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 you know, like saying the Or the profanity in it or like if it's the a graphic profanity, or, yeah, or like I'm supposed to be upset. A lot yeah. of times, you know, at my age, when you're in your 40s, you get up, you're up for like the, the missing, the, your, your child is missing and you're upset. Like I get a lot of those. And um, your husband is in politics and he's betrayed you. Um, with a, another woman or you're in politics and sleeping with a uh, person you're not supposed to be sleeping with. Um, but for the most part, your husband's done something either illegal or in, in his profession and you're shocked or he's sleeping with somebody. Hmm. So those are my part. Those are the parts. But along the self tape vein, um, you've watched, you've experienced the industry literally transform. We were talking about it before you went from costume fittings you know, with, with cookies to these self tapes and this whole self promotion of yeah. sorts, as opposed to just having the, Oh, so-and-so would like to see you now. Come in, please. please oh yeah. You know, so we'll your, your listeners don't know what we're talking about. What we're right. talking about is, is I was saying to him that, um, I might be able to, um, to give some some example of my own experience well, yeah, whatever of, you can. of the nineties of, of what it was like to be in the theater before it was, I mean, the good thing about the internet and the sort of, and, and, you know, auditions being sort of the whole business now seems like everybody wants to be in it. And there's more programs, more people piling out of college and so on. But it was a little more um, tricky to figure out how to get in Mm. and how it worked because there was no media. We didn't have media. So we didn't really know how to become an activist print (laughs) and rumors and and a fantasy. And you kind of had to come physically to New York. Knock on doors. Yeah. You had to physically knock on a door. You know, people didn't even have Xerox machines at one point. I'm not from, I'm not that old, but there were times (laughs) where scripts, there were, you couldn't even get a script because you had to physically read it in your agent's office and then like go with the one piece of paper and then bring that paper back. Yeah the sides, you know, and, but you have to read the script in your agent's office. You know, I'm, I'm not from that era, Mm. but that was the way it all started, you know? Yeah. So anyway, I was saying that when I started on, on Broadway and so on, you know, you know, with the, with the, the great fortunes that I had, like to star in My Fair Lady and Anna Karenina at the Circle in the Square with Ted Mann, who had created the Circle in the Square. He was my director. Pat Birch was the choreographer. He's Um, a great guy. Ted? I auditioned for him for the program. Oh, you did? Yeah, so I, I met him, and it was 2012 or 13. It was like right before he passed. I mean, it was a year after that he passed. But he's such a nice guy, and his background and story of creating it, you know, upstate, bringing it down. Anyway, yeah, that's yeah, just no, a little he's addition. A he's a really good guy. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of real iconic people around, like Lynn Meadow from Manhattan Theater Club. You know, yeah. People who have been around forever. And I mean, I hope, I think we will. But I, I hope that the next generation of leaders, you know, I think they do. I think most, you know, just to keep keep um, those values. Of what is a theater company, and 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 how to keep you know continue to support new work and and cl- and keep the classics you know uh, alive. And you know, someone like like um, Ted Mann. You know, he was he was building something. So anyway, he was yes. the director of my first um, Broadway. Uh, Broadway show and um, but it, but all the way through all those years you know I was telling you that when you had I yeah. had costume fittings for example um, you know they would serve cookies on layered plates and and and, and give and uh, it was a party it was a party it was an occasion things yeah. were more were it felt very interpersonal you really knew the name of the seamstresses you knew who was making your corset and yeah. um, it wasn't such a uh, rushed machine I'm sure costume fittings are still very pleasant but it it the business had a kind of courtship. Um, 
and uh, was smaller. It just was smaller. And uh, um, I do believe there was a kind of uh, uh, courtliness about it, you know, when the producer come to, you know, come and talk with you, um, you know, in a more sort of a formal way, open the door, uh, you know, for you, um, take you to the Russian, Russian tea way. room a little bit, yeah. you know, have yeah. a nice lunch at the Russian tea you room. You get to audition in a theater or whatever. It's just you more, know, auditioning yeah. was a little more personal. The self-taping thing is, is harsh. There's just so much more consciousness of how we sell ourselves now because we aren't selling ourselves just based on the eye-to-eye contact and the limited meetings that you have. Now we're being perceived constantly on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter. Um, uh, everything that you do, even the smallest appearance in a gala is um, on YouTube. You know, we don't prepare for these galas and now every, all our performances are on YouTube and things yeah. like that. Sometimes that's good, but we have to look at them. We have to look at each other with some forgiveness that like possibly uh, I messed up the words to not getting married today sometimes because I was asked spontaneously to do it. I was like, what? And it was one, live, yeah. <laughs> yeah, one time they were like, oh, can you just, can somebody sing from company? And I was like, I, I know that song, but I mean, that's not a song you just do without thinking about it, which I did. It's on yeah. YouTube. Um, <laughs> it's on YouTube. <laughs> it's on YouTube. I don't even think I messed it up that much, but like Rob Berman was like quickly like trying to figure out if he knew it. I think he uh, might have had to like look it up to like the word. I mean, we were being asked to do it spontaneously. Right. And these kind of things now are on the internet. Forever. Forever. Yeah. So things have really changed. And um, How have you handled uh, it? How have I handled it? Well, I think... I mean, well, it would appear very well. I think I've know. handled it well. I think I've handled it well insofar as I think I've adopted um, um, an attitude that I hope will help other people too, which is that I think all of us, um, as much as we want to work in the community and see it as a community, you also have to, um, I think in this day and age, see yourself as an independent artist, mm. which I've started to do. Um, and, and you can make things happen for yourself and that's Mm -hmm. what the internet is inviting. And I also think you should, you should, you should take that invitation. Um, I've, I've sort of had to do a few other things because I now have children. I think it's very difficult to be a female and give up that side of yourself and give up the experience, the life, the human life experience of being a parent. Um, Someone's got to do it. How have right? you found that balance to work? Well, I mean, there's discipline, right? And you're, well, I've, I've done it, like I'm saying, by being yeah. an independent artist. I've had to sort of simultaneously be a good mom and, 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 and have a home and have a routine and know how to make lunches in the morning and know where they're going to be. And if they have ballet class or if they're, if they're, my daughter, one is a tennis player, if she has an injury yeah. to help her through it and then get her back on the court and know where her tournaments are. You know, so all the, the minutia of being a mom takes so much care and planning. And then we, we work in a business that also doesn't have a set um, course. None of us go to med school and then just get a job as doctors. We are... And you're done at five. <laughs> yeah, we all come at this from different yeah. angles. Um, there's never the right way to do it. And so you have to be super creative and mm. you have to make order out of your career. So while I've organized and ordered my family, I've tried to get some order in my career. Mm. And I had to make choices in my career that I could also be a good mother. Yeah. Um, and in that case, eight shows a week again is not ideal, but I have worked at the Irish rep off Broadway. Um, I did a long run at, um, uh, for Finian's rainbow, which went right through the, uh, the Trump, um, uh, uh, 
presidency, like right when he got elected that horrible night. Um, and there I was in a musical, which is the original Hamilton. It's the, the first musical where black and white actors acted together. It is about a white politician who is racist. And it is about, um, uh, uh, it is a vision, um, for, uh, laughing racism out of existence. If the leprechaun can be green and then lose his color, why can't the black, the white guy become black? What does it matter? The color of your skin. And Yip Harburg was a great, great early example of what musical theater can do, like what Lin-Manuel has done for us, which is to keep bringing progressive ideas to musical theater. But I was in Finian's Rainbow, which is, yes, a retro show, but it's not that retro. And it certainly wasn't retro on the night that Trump was elected. And it it became a hit. And so it ran and ran and ran and ran. And then I had, I was well past, you know, five, six months, and I was eight shows a week. So I was a mom. So there I was. So I can actually do a short Broadway run. I learned. But I didn't, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know I could do that. I didn't yeah. know I could do that. I didn't know my yeah. kids could handle it. But it started out, I think, as a nine-week run mm. or something like that, seven weeks, something. So it kept getting extended, and it got extended like so many times we had to recast it a couple mm. times. Um, so I think Off-Broadway was my solution f- f- for the time being, while the kids are under 10. Right. And, um, and concerts. And then um, the writing came. And the first thing I wrote about was being an ingenue in Finian's Rainbow. The New York Times said, what's going on in your life? I said, well, at that time, I said, well, nothing is going on in my life. I said, I am in my mid-40s, early mid-40s, and I, at that time, and I just got asked to play Sharon in Finian's Rainbow again. I've done the play many times. (sighs) I said, I'm too old now. I'm just too old to play these ingenue parts. I've been playing ingenue parts my whole, and he said, that's funny. I said, it's funny that I'm too old for my part. He goes, yeah, it's funny. Well, are you going to, are you going to take the part? I said, I don't know. He goes, well, how about you pack and unpack your mind in the New York times and write like an essay about aging and about being an ingenue. Mm. And what is it to be young and pretty and and the ingenue? She's not like the sexy character. Mm. She doesn't have the hot figure she just has a nice waistline mm. and a proper little breasts you know but not too big mm. and the perfect little face and so it's kind of the it's not easy to be an ingenue it's not like it, it's we all think we want to be the ingenue but then it's kind of like it's actually better to be not better but it's 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 not the unusual person it's not the person mm. with the the always with the spunk and spark the killer um, <laughs> it's that, just a yeah. little more fun and it's, yeah it's it's yeah. something it's it's a it's almost like a sieve for other people's dreams or for a man to want something that's going to be easy you know and so i always i always oh, was yeah. an ingenue and i always thought i always tried to make the ingenues not that and not just a sieve i tried to make them smart and lively and, and a little sensual and uh, maybe even a little erotic a little smarter than the man you know so that it just had a little spark that he was like oh look at hers and she's something so that i always seemed a formidable mm. partner um in the ingenue skin you know mm-hmm. and i think i did bring that i think that's why i worked so much as an ingenue because i was a, i did have a lot going on behind the eyes yeah. i wasn't just like a pretty face um but i had all the external attributes of the kind of conventional you know, conventionally pretty. The social standards of a... Yeah, social yeah. standards. I had the like pretty, yeah. you know, and I, I'm not saying that that's a, a, an asset. I'm not bragging. I'm just saying that just I had that look. Oh, and yeah. again, you go back to a time where this is what they wanted. They're a little more, people are now casting more unusually in the ingenue parts and stuff, but they weren't when I was coming up. So I had that advantage that yeah. I just looked the part, put me in any dress. I looked just right. 
Yeah. Um, so that's what I wrote about in the New York Times that now I'm like an aging ingenue. Huh. And how do you age? And how do you let go of that identity? I called myself the terminal ingenue. But, <laughs> um, but you know, so um, yeah. when is it my time to start playing, you know, feistier, more difficult people, you know, Auntie Mames and, the, and, and Kiss Me Kate and yeah. um, uh, maybe Desiree and Little Night Music. I actually have all the spunk and fire, you mm. know. So I, it, at some point, I hope that will, that, you might think that's starting to happen. But that's what the article was about. It was about um, being too old um, to play the ingenue and what an ingenue's uh, uh, future uh, can be. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. You've, I mean, you've, you've also played, I mean, such a variety. There's such a variety that you've, I mean, I'm not even going to list the shows. There's just like so many. Well, you're looking but, at you're looking at this poster. You can yeah. uh, your listeners can't see this, but there's a poster that I brought um, that the record label made up for Sondheim Sublime, yeah. which is all the Sondheim parts that I played. And Sondheim really is the place where um, there is no such thing as the traditional ingenue. Yeah. And so, for what I'm saying about feeling trapped a little bit in the in the um, body of a Sharon type character. Anytime you do Sondheim, there's more layers. So Sondheim was probably the seed um, that was growing all these years. And I just was too... um, Mm too young and uh, simple to, to understand it. And as you get older, you can understand writing like this. Um, the first ingenue character I played for Sondheim was Sunday in the Park with George. And the pictures we're looking at here is a picture of me in my underwear um, in, a, <laughs> in a corset. And that she is the muse to a painter. And mm. that's a running theme in my life is, um, is uh, being a muse. I've, I had a um, long... Uh, personal relationship with the director of My Fair Lady, who was much, much older than me. I know a lot about that part, that role in life. And I'm not saying that like I was the muse to the to the director of My Fair Lady, but we did fall in love. And I do know a little bit about being Dot in Sunday in the Park with George and being yeah. the painter's model and inspiring a, a man, an older man, mm. inspiring good work from them and also finding your own value in that process. Have any of these um, roles taught you the most about yourself? Or The Sondheim roles? Yeah. Well, they each taught me something else. I mean, I, I recognized in Dot that I've always had this thing to... to, um, to put other people's creativity, um, not that I would put it above my own, but I'm actually very good at getting it mm. and ins- and being inspired by other people. I am an interpretive artist, and I guess that all actors really are. We have to admire Shakespeare. We have to admire Janine Tesori. We have to admire Sarah Bareilles. We do. Yeah. We, we revere them, and we become their muses, or we become their, their um, uh, you know, uh, their worshipers you know that's what an interpretive artist does you need to understand the author i have started to become an author of essays about the actor's experience but i am not the author of Mm. art like of of musicals and so on but Mm. so in sondheim the first thing i recognized in playing sunday in the park with george was that i am naturally somebody who who knows how to find uh the wonder in somebody else's talent. She saw it in George Surratt, but she also wanted a personal life. I didn't even know at the time how much 
Sunday in the Park with George was about that baby. Mm-hmm. She gets pregnant and she doesn't have anyone to take care of that baby. And the question of can you have a home mm-hmm. and be artistic? That is the big question in Sunday in the Park with George. I played the part and I don't think I, un- I thought I understood it. Mm-hmm. I understood it. And I understand it now. Mm-hmm. What do you do in your 40s when you're, you're later 40s and your children are big, are getting big now and they really are fine? Do I quit? I don't want to quit you know, and make myself just more and more in their audience. It's Mm. not good for them. It's important as creative people to not let the idea of domesticity just pull you Mm. and just pull you out of your own creativity. It's important for raising children to Mm. keep yourself um, in control of your destiny. It's good modeling for your children. But the Play asks all these questions. Can you be an artist, a real obsessive artist, and have a home? Sondheim's um, answer is no in that. Right. He, George Surratt walks off, but he never forgets her. But it's a, sort, it's a tormented show in that way. I think, Many are. <laughs> right? It's a tormented yeah. show. So that, that's one thing that I learned. I learned to ask the question about, can you have a personal life right. and an artistic life at the same time? And um, I think I'm still wrestling with that. And I'm, I'm going to be out there for your younger listeners, and I'm going to say yes. And I'm gonna be, um, I'm gonna produce work for women, and I'm gonna empower other women, and I'm gonna keep publishing um, articles about what it feels like on the inside to just keep giving people information and to share the mistakes I've made. And you know, I, I think if if uh, you have mentors and examples, then it's possible. So I want to be one of those. Who are your mentors? Possible. Do you uh, have any, or did you I have do. any? I do. Donna Murphy. Um, Donna Murphy is someone that I admire and know pretty well. Patty Lapone. These yeah. are people who've really taken my hand. Betty Buckley. Yeah. They've really been kind to me. Um, uh, and um, uh, I also have an uh, intellectual mentor right now. His name is Adam Gopnik. He's a writer for the New Yorker magazine. Mm. And he's a great thinker and a great poet. And he writes musicals, but also just a very inspiring friend and person. Mm. Um, so often sends me um, uh, just inspirational ideas about, um, because he's a writer, about learning to write my own life. Take mm. all these experiences that I've had and organize them. Mm. One of the things about being a creative person, and I'm sure listening to a podcast is tricky because it's like, oh, this person talks in circles. But, <laughs> but life is circles, right? And then after you've put all that out there and you've lived, and you want to organize it into little groups. Yeah. Um, and writing has, has been very, uh, been very su- uh, supported by uh, this uh, lyricist. He's a lyricist and a book writer for musicals, but also an essayist in The New Yorker magazine um just been very encouraging um of my uh writing for the new york times and for other magazines and just going topic by topic i wrote about misogyny um in the new york times i wrote about the life on a playbill cruise what Mm. really goes on on the boat i did a long essay on that i went out and did a cruise and i wrote about the cruise and i wrote a lot about what makes theater people worth well, $14,000 a ticket, but what it, why would you want to go out to sea with a group of actors who've been on Broadway maybe 10 times, five times, whatever. Mm. Some have won Tonys, some haven't, but real theater stars and theater actors. Why would you want to be out in the ocean with them 
isolated for eight days? That's a good question. Well, when I went out on the boat, I that realized is. that people wanted our glamour. Yes, they wanted yeah. a glamorous night, but they wanted to hear about our failures. They wanted to hear about the nights that, you know, um, somebody was out there with a broken arm and had to get through Pippin and somebody fell down the stairs as Auntie Mame. They wanted to hear about um, the heartbreaking disappointments that we'd been through um, yeah. on Broadway. They wanted to hear that high society was a big hit in San Francisco for me, but did not succeed in New York and it caused terrible depression for me. Mm. Um, and people wanted those stories. And we had these chatterbox things with Seth Rudetsky where yeah. we talked about our feelings and we talked about the ups and downs. That's what the audience likes is our vulnerability oh, theater stars it. are more vulnerable than television and film stars there's something built into it and so what i said was that what floated that boat were not as much our triumphs as our our failures in uh, in a sense and i use the metaphor that there's many shipwrecks out in the caribbean where we were swimming and we had to swim and do things and activities with the guests yeah. but shipwreck is a very common uh, structure um, under the sea this around which all this coral and fish and color grows and we literally in the same way the shipwrecks of the theater the shipwrecks of our life experience so much life that grows around it so much <laughs> life and humor and resilience grows yeah. we always we get great stories out of our failures we get yes we do <laughs> i lost my 12 inches of hair yeah. i mean that's the best story i have and yeah. that was the biggest failure it was so, so depressing but we are very resilient people and that's theater performers and yes. the resilience is the theme of all of my writing for the New York times. Mm. Um, the, even the self tape article, we, who else on earth would be as resilient and as brave and as generous as us that we turn the camera on ourselves and share who we are and then email it to somebody. It is the, it is, I admire, um, my peers. Mm. So I think that resilience is my theme Yeah, and I think that it's what I have to, um, to, uh, reinforce in younger people who seem to sometimes um, be idealistic and then get immediately depressed when things don't work out. Yes. They need to become more resilient. They need to just keep picking themselves back up. They Every have to time. expect flexibility is the most important asset that oh they my have. God, yeah. Flexibility, much more than um, having a vision of what they want and either getting it or not getting it. Yeah. Cause it's not solid. You can't have a solid state. No, you, you got to enjoy gotta, flux. You, you got to be, be a surfer girl. You yes. got to be a surfer girl. You got to go up and down. Yeah. You got to, you got to learn to balance the surfboard of life. Yeah. That's you, the surfer girl. Do no. you have, um, by the way, we didn't finish all these. Oh places. yeah. That's yeah, okay. yeah. Let's hop. I don't know if anybody's going to be keeping an outline, but you did ask me what I'd learned from Sondheim. Yes. So the other two things I learned, and then we I could literally do it in a sentence, but in case there's someone who's keeping score, <laughs> the other musical I did was Passion. Yes. The big question in Passion was, um, you know, where does passion lie in your life? You, She's married. She has a child. She has her domestic, um, Clara, this is. Yeah. She has her domestic responsibilities, but... Um, uh, she's fitting her lover in to one single room uh, for one hour appointments. And eventually Giorgio gives up on her and he wants 
to be loved fully. Mm. And he goes for Fosco's crazy love because she gives him everything. She gives him everything and then she basically has an orgasm and dies at the end. (laughs) Sondheim (laughs) says the musical begins with an orgasm and ends with an orgasm. There it is. The first one was mine. The second one was um, for Fosco, which is the great Donna Murphy's role or played beautifully by um, Judy Kuhn. So Clara and Fosca and Giorgio are really uh, making us wonder why we love people. Mm. Do we love people? Do we get confused by their beauty? Do we love people because they're available? Do we love people because they give us all of themselves and worship us? It's kind of gross, actually, what Fosca offered. Mm. But she offered all of herself to destroy herself. But, you know, I'm the advocate for my own character, so I'm going to put her down. (laughs) And uh, I'm going to advocate for Clara, who gave him everything, but she couldn't give him all her days and all her time because Mm. she had a family. Giorgio judged that, ultimately, and Mm. said it wasn't enough and broke her to pieces actually broke me too i had a really um profound experience being in passion but those are the questions of passion so um people can think about that as they like the only other sondheim part um 100 that i've played other than all of the fantasies i've had through making my album last year um, where i played all the characters and phyllis and all the different people and follies and and, um, a little night music and petra and desiree i have played leona in Do I Hear a Waltz? And Leona mm. was a middle-aged, um, a young middle-aged uh, person who'd never taken care of herself and had any freedom. And she went to Venice on a holiday. And um, she had an idea about um, uh, love being absolutely 100%. Everything had to be 100%. Um, she uh, did have, fall in love with someone, but when she found out that he was married and that there were those constraints, she was broken to pieces yeah. and he said to her we have to take the moment and live it now and that's the whole idea is do we accept happiness mm. that's imperfect sometimes we think we have to and leona never learned that she wanted everything to be perfect and she threw him out you know and she she said goodbye at the end she wasn't able to enjoy half half a man he offered her everything, but he couldn't. He was also a married person. It's a thematic, maybe for a time, but is um, finding finding satisfaction in an imperfect situation. Mm. You know. Yeah. How did you keep your composure? You know, before and after shows mm-hmm. of doing. I mean, because you didn't. can lose yourself think, in this. I don't kind of think Sondheim is survivable. I think that you have to be really. Oh, it's not. Okay. I don't think so. I don't think so. Let's just flip this over. I'm yeah, going to turn right. the poster upside down so we can't see. The poster has all these different pictures of me on it. So yeah, I think. Uh, so now we're looking at a piece of white paper, which is blank. There it a is. A blank canvas. All right. And that's how Sunday in the Park uh, begins, um, and um, or ends. Hmm. ends i think mm-hmm. it's the final word oh my god somebody's going to yell at me so badly when this airs it's okay right. a blank it's okay. canvas so many possibilities yeah. i think that's the end of the show yeah there it that's is. the end of the show so anyway how do you survive it you don't survive sondheim you can't you can't it's so it's it's so um um dense with uh contradiction uh mm. contradiction he has said is mother's milk to him there is no contradiction in contradiction. Life is constantly... Um, Contradicting itself. Con- yeah. <laughs> it's black and white simultaneously. Yeah. It's no gray. 
and yeah. it's learning to understand that we all have contradictory desires. Um, we are all sorry, grateful, simult- all the time, mm. you know, that like that song, yeah. that's his life is the living in contradiction. And if you embrace that, you find a lot of vitality according to him. Mm. Someone like Michelle Legrand would maybe be the, um, balm for the soul because Michelle Legrand is not stressed out mm. at all. He's European. He did work with, with also with James Lapine. So mm. that's the, the lit, the kind of the hinge, um, for me creatively is that there was the same director who worked with Sondheim, worked with Michelle Legrand, brought me into Michelle Legrand's world. But Michelle Legrand comes from a different psychology. It, yes, it's the psychology of jazz, classical music, movies. It's not so New York. It's not so neurotic. It's not so story oriented. Yeah. Michelle Legrand doesn't really care so much about like logic. It's feeling. It's sound. Mm. So when you sing his music, you're not. There's no arc to the story exactly. You can make one, and I often do, but it's emotion it's almost like modern dance in a way it's like it doesn't have to have a set answer yeah. so when you work with someone like michelle Legrand, you find yourself relaxing mm. in some ways and dealing with great great melodic complexity but um it's like the opposite of the new york nervous writer of sondheim it's yeah. a european sensual affirmative uh emotional forward moving beautiful music um uh, and it can be fraught it can be heartbroken it can be crushed it can be a lot of things but it's um it's a there's a different kind of european sensibility so in some ways i i'm on a new vacation it's like being dropped on a greek island or something (laughs) you know and seeing the world as beautiful and noticing sunsets and time to yourself and there's something very uh sensual and escapist about about the new album i'm putting out and the music i'm doing uh the mute the words are more poetical um and simple in some ways what's what's most important to you in life is that ever changing what's most important to me in life is um um Well, there's a bunch of words came to mind. Uh, activity is very important to me. I love being active. Yeah. But um, I'm very communal. I would never do anything creative um, that hurt other people or that uh, um, I guess I'm a natural theater person insofar as I loved being in a theater company. Yeah. I actually like creating groups. Mm. I like being creative, but I like doing it together. The sense of that community. Yeah. yeah. I recreate that in my concerts. I making my Michelle Legrand album, I have a, you know, a producer, a pianist, a bass player, a drummer, an engineer, a co-writer, a designer. There's all the people at Warner Music that we're working with. We have a filmmaker who makes the videos. We have Jenny Anderson, the amazing photographer, taking pictures. And it's a whole team effort. We have a social media person. But all together, we're making these interesting little promotions on Instagram. So we've made a world. And it's like a theater company. When you can't be in a theater company, I think it's really good to create collectives 
creative yeah. collectives. I would really advise everybody, you know, if they have an acting class they like taking or if they have a group of people, I don't care if it's a reading club. If you have nothing to do, get together, read scripts, create yeah. um, creative circles. And creating creative circles is probably my, my greatest value, mm. um, life value. And I do it in my home too. I like to have creativity, to, uh, you know, creative things happen. My kids play ukulele and piano and guitar as well as their dancers. I like the idea of a, not a commune, but um, I, I like working creatively in, in, in teams. Mm. And I, I, I really encourage uh, any creative uh, grouping that you can create. You know, I think that something will come. If you want to make a video, get someone interested in it. You know, loop, loop a friend in yeah. uh, or get a composer writing something. Or if you want to write lyrics, try it, you know. And if you don't play the guitar that well, well, either be really bad or get somebody to play some chords with you. And I don't know. I, I like the idea of working in, uh, in teams, even if it seems as simplistic as what I'm describing as like <laughs> too bad musicians <laughs> getting together, making music. It's actually really important to make... To, to make, let's say if you're an essayist, I, so when I'm writing, you know, now for the pretty prominent, you know, places, yes. I, <laughs> I, I write a C paper and I yeah. edit it to an A. Okay. You got to write. You don't even think, or you do think, you just but have you just to do. do it. You just do You it. have to do it. Yeah. It's, it's doing, you know? So when I say my initial thought, when you said, what's your, your biggest value? It was like activity. It's like, it is, it's like you have to keep doing it's very easy to get blocked. In the 90s, before there was all these podcasts, and like, which are, of course, wonderful, but you couldn't <laughs> get information. No. There was, you know, and advice. Um, there was this book called The Artist's Way. Yeah. I mean, we used to, I mean, literally, yeah. I, I used to do it with friends and stuff, yeah. you know? To it's get a workbook. Out. Yeah, it's kind of like yeah. a workbook. So I guess create, um, working in creative groups for me is one of my, um, my biggest... Uh, values you did you ask me if it was my value or important to you in life yeah what was important to me in yeah. life yeah working in teams working i my family i perceive as a team of course, um yeah. team mcenroe we call it hey. i'm married to patrick <laughs> mcenroe tennis player i married a uh, pro athlete who i met when i was five and his he went on to be on tv and i saw him at wimbledon i saw him on you know at some matches and things and i thought oh i grew up with him we were in nursery school together and he was my older brother's best friend and his mom saw me in my fair lady and she set us up no totally way. this is an arranged marriage like in <laughs> pakistan or something <laughs> oh so um she set us up and i was 25 and we got married yeah. really quickly so i've been married a really long time mm. which is not very traditional um to get mm. married young and just well and to stay um, yeah. so I'm, I'm, uh, a tennis wife as well as everything else. Um, Patrick McEnroe is his name yeah. and he is the younger brother, the youngest of three. Um, and his eldest brother is the most famous tennis player, um, mm. among the most famous athletes in history, mm. John McEnroe. And people ask me constantly for tickets. So oh, Lord. <laughs> they'll be writing to you saying, and have you gotten, she was great, but can I have tickets? You got better at saying no? <laughs> or no? no, I have a couple. I have a, there's a couple of ways in which yeah. I handle this, but okay. um, people have to come and ask me. But yeah. um, <laughs> that's what you get people are always asking me if I play tennis. And I said, I did a lot when we were dating. That was definitely for him. No, yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah, we were dating, and and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. less now. We have we have that one is. tennis playing daughter, and yeah. um, no, but he's amazing. So you know, I was in London last um, last week. I was singing at Royal Festival Hall, um, and um, 
So that would be, actually it was longer than last week. It was September 20th. And um, he was in Geneva at the Laver Cup. He's the coach and captain with his brother, John, of the Laver Cup. These are huge events. May wow. not mean much to the theater community, but this is massive 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 events like super bowl size yeah and my husband was the american uh coaching captain with his brother Mm. and i was doing the michelle legrand memorial in london and then Mm. we met in europe and took a couple of days which is unusual so sometimes our lives will be fancy like that i'll be doing a concert and he'll be doing an amazing sporting event um and then you're back in the city and then i'm back (laughs) so this is what i you know at the moment this is where i'm 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 working my broadway skills you know i get every single show um that i do i've noticed that now that i see myself as a as a as a uh, more independent artist making my own um making my own uh uh, work a little bit more than you know being uh, in a play on broadway um which i would love to do again and when the time is right um, but you know, I'm out there singing the songs I want to sing in beautiful clothes, telling stories people love to hear yeah. and have never heard before, whether it's about Sondheim or it's a, and I like to give people a new view on music and the way you set a song up can change the way they hear it. And I love being a concert singer because, um, it's a opportunity for me to show that I'm a thinking mm-hmm. actress and that, you know, I went to Yale and I studied, uh, liter- literature and, and, uh, and history and um, I have a strong value about uh, beautiful writing and words and the, uh, the great wordsmiths that you know gave us all the great classic songs that I sing so I always have something to say I always script mm. something um, and we have a lot of fun in the concerts you know um, so so I've, I've liked I've liked getting out there and making making music as my personal theater at the moment yeah, and the writing too. I've made it like my own personal theater at this chapter, yeah. you know, and maybe I'll go back to the normal chapter of being a part of a theater company on Broadway and just hoof it and do on it. Someone else's schedule. Yeah. And be on someone own. else's schedule. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm happy for that. Yeah. I'm happy for that. But at the moment I'm actually, it's on somebody else's schedule, which yeah. is my family, yeah. you know, like we're, we're all, we're not always the first and most number one, most important person in the world. And sometimes you have to say, okay, I'm not, I, let's say you have a parent who's sick or somebody else needs you. Well, we all have to adjust and we have to be Mm -hmm. kind with each other. You know, we, I I noticed a tweet the other day by Jane Monheit, a terrific jazz singer. And she says, please stop talking about my weight. Don't say it. Don't say I look better. Don't say I didn't used to look good. Don't say I'm looking good. I don't want to hear a compliment and I don't want to hear a negative. Um, and, uh, it's, we never know what people are going through, you know? And, um, this is what I'm going through right now. I'm raising a family. I've never stopped loving theater. I mean, loving it to my core. I never quit. Mm. I have a family to raise. I've had health things. Like I had a tumor a couple of years ago. I had a, it was publicized and, um, you know, I, that's where Sondheim sublime came from. I was very humbled. I was nervous. I saw Marin Maisie had died. You know, and I had a tumor and an ovary, and I was thinking, "Fuck!" You know, oh, can that's can okay. you say that on a podcast? It's an adult program. Yeah, I was <laughs> thinking, "Gosh, you know, yeah. uh, what have I learned? Thirty years as an actress, doing Broadway, and all my dreams and hopes and ups and downs and beautiful, wonderful things, and and uh, people I've loved, and then L.A. and values. What have I learned?" And I decided to use Stephen Sondheim's music, and mm. that's why it's called Sondheim's Sublime. Mm. It's because if I had to write a letter, if I were to have to let go of this life on this earth in this manifestation, 
what, what would, would I leave behind for you and all your listeners and people who love? I decided to look for the wisdom in Sondheim, the empathy in Sondheim, um, the clarity in his confusing but really profound songs. Mm. And that's where Sondheim Sublime came from. So people can feel like, oh, Sondheim Sublime, it sounds kind of like, ooh, Melissa, like she's so smart or whatever. <laughs> um, sublime, the sublimity, you know, yeah, like art yeah. history, whatever. It's not that. It's like, I'm just a person and I was scared and I'm a woman and I'm a, a not a uh, unsensual woman. And I thought, oh God, I would love to leave the sensual songs behind about love and choices and children and birth and marriage. And um, I sang children in art and I sang with so little to be sure of from the bottom of my heart. I sang move on and I sang sooner or later, you know, which is a great seduction song. Um, and I sang loving you from passion, you know, the show I barely survived. Mm. So I, I wanted to leave something beautiful that felt like Melissa behind. I don't know who, we never know who we are, right? right? But, and we're not artists that make our own stuff unless we're Sarah Bareilles or Lynn manuel but even then he's now in Mary Poppins and he's in different things. We're interpreting right. other people's work. Yes. We're actors. So we have to find who we are through other people, Yeah. right? Through the teams and the groups that we join, the theater, we, what do we add? Not always easy. I'm not always easy because I ask questions or because I'm so emotionally available. There are some people who just clock in a Broadway show or are really good at just being witty and just do their thing mm -mm -mm, and go home. But mm. I was never asked to be that person. I was asked to be the ingenue who cared, who loved him, who looked at his mm. face and his lips and wanted him and sang about much I want him. I don't want to just, mm. I can't clock in that performance. You can't turn it on and off. You can't turn that on yeah. and off. That's a softness. And I yeah. had that softness. So, and I've, so... Now I'm older. How do I keep that theater quality alive? And I'm doing it interpreting Sondheim. Now I'm interpreting again Michel Legrand because he did just die. Um, I was asked by the New York Times to write his obituary, which I did lovingly. And I've gone back to being his muse at the moment. Mm. I've done everything to put him first mm. in this record. I made an album with him about not even 10 years ago with a symphony and it's the most beautiful record but now I've given everybody 12 new songs mm. the demos of him and me playing in my living room yeah. the demos that we made you can literally hear him playing the piano with Steve Gadd who was you know did some of the most famous jazz riffs in the world and the greatest drummers in history. I yeah. had to call Steve Gadd. I can't afford Steve Gadd. <laughs> I said, Steve, I'm going to put out those demos you did. He says, good luck with it. Yeah. I said, I mean, he knows I can't even afford him. He just yeah. gave it to me for free. Yeah. So the demos have these legends on it. So I have five or six demos. I have yeah. the home demos with Michelle and I have the last song he ever wrote before he died. The Bergmans gave it to me and I recorded it. So that's going to be um, my... That's the third single that um, was out wow. on November 1st. But um, so Michelle Legrand's last song he ever wrote. Um, and I've done everything I can to be selfless in this record, to find the Melissa in it, but also to put Michelle Legrand 100% yeah. in, in back in people's hearts and minds. I think people, real singers, all sopranos, mid-sopranos, even belters are going to love to hear these melodies. You know, you can use them yeah. for auditions. Um, 
But uh, and they're lesser so, known to this generation. Just they're lesser of the, known, but they're gorgeous. Just because of what people are picking these they're days. They're gonna come back. <laughs> they're gonna come back. Yeah. They're gonna come back. You know, when something is real, like Tony Bennett said to me, only sing the good songs. Hmm. That was his advice to me. Hmm. Just remember, only sing the good songs, and these are among the good songs. Yeah. These are the standards of our time. This man, though he's French, he is in the great American songbook. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. I'm, so I've gone back to being a muse. I've gone back to being dot in Sunday in the park with George. I have my God now is Michelle Legrand, but I think I know who Melissa is and all of that. That's been, you know, that's a journey, um, for someone who's naturally, uh, maybe a natural muse. Um, but uh, so this is my latest project, and that's how that's so how exciting. I've been living my life, like making my own work at the moment, until uh, until another musical comes along, and I will then serve. Those are the trends that. these days. Make your own. Make your own make work. Your own stuff. Make your own work. Yeah. I do think you're right, and I think that's one of the reasons why I am. Saying that's why that. I started this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's a trend. Yeah. It seems to be the way to go. Do you have books? Favorite books? Most gifted books? Books uh, you refer to frequently or texts you refer to often? Or? Yeah, I have favorite books. I mean, right now I'm reading Voltaire in Love, which is an amazing book. Um, yeah. And I just read um, Lillian Ross's book, Picture. Uh, it's an amazing book about, um, about Hollywood um, by Lillian Ross. And what I love about that book is um, it shows the course from it, it's uh, Angelica Houston's father, John Houston was a great independent filmmaker, and it 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 charts the creation of one of his um, movies, and it lets you see how a movie gets made from its idea all the way to the end, and all the people that muddle it up, mm. all the marketing people, and the poster, and mm. the casting, and you watch the idea, and you watch all the crowding that comes in. There's so many people between us and our creativity yeah. and our dream like the, and our audience <laughs> and then the audience but yeah. then we, by, the, by the time that movie got to that was the red Bad, badge of courage yeah. that particular film by the time it was seen it had nothing to do with how it what it was when it started mm. it was based on this book but they had this one they had an idea of the movie they wanted to make mm. and they never made that movie yeah. they did make it but then it got re-edited and changed it was a re-shot and it's so interesting how do we protect ourselves our initial ideas because the process of making art involves so many other people collaboration yeah. collaboration and then media and then salesmanship and then ticket sales and then you know and and hopefully by the time you're presenting your work hopefully mm. by the time it's your Hamilton or something, or it doesn't have to make it that big, but mm. by the time it's on your stage, whatever your stage is, hopefully it reflects the initial idea that was yours. Cause mm. then you can live with yourself, yeah. right? If it feels like you and it's out there, then it's good. Yeah. Then it's your gold. It doesn't have to succeed in every way for everyone, but if it's your gold and it's still up on that stage, by the time you get it done, you've succeeded. And a book like that makes me, you know, it stays with me. Yeah. You know, how do you keep your 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 initial uh, this the kernel of truth and I, the idea you initially had as you try to get out there? How do you keep how do you keep it 
how do you protect it? All the way to the end. So a book like that. And then you had asked me if I had a a quote that I that I love. Yeah, as we wrap up, Billboard. But I'm gonna. Here's my my favorite quote is um, by a French poet, and I'm gonna keep it French because of my Michel Legrand project, (laughs) which we are celebrating at this moment. This is my current theater, the Theater of France. Yeah. So there is a um, a quote by the French poet Valerie. It was translated by W. H. Auden. Um, and the quote is, a poem is never finished, only abandoned. Mm-hmm. And he contrasts it um, actually in his book with the sort of opposite aphorism, which is when a poem comes right, it comes right with a definitive click, like a jewel box closing. So what he's really saying is that we're always torn in our work between the two truths. The one truth that work is never finished and the other truth that we know when it's finished with a decisive click of certainty. And I think both apply in our life. Like mm. sometimes it's not finished. It just it doesn't feel finished. We never feel finished. But it's and time other, to move on. But yeah. it's time to move on. And other times you do know that it's finished and you, you hear that click, when that, that other side of it. When a poem comes right, it comes right with a definitive click like a jewel box closing. So sometimes you do f- hear that click and other times you don't hear that click. But we live torn between those two, those two things, you know, yeah. as creative artists. And it's okay, mm-hmm. you know, both can apply. Yeah, with flexibility. Yeah, with both can apply. Sometimes you're gonna hear the click, sometimes it's unfinished. Yeah. And um, so the initial, the initial quote there was, a poem is never finished, only abandoned. And that's by one of the great po- poets in the world, you know. Yeah. You finish it, kind of. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And it kind of that the first one is kind of what this feels like. You know, but we could the go on. The work you do. We of could keep going on with our do. conversation, well, of though. Of course, it's because like we my just, life goes on. We just and you're going to have new guests, and yeah. you're an amazing and interested person. You like people. Yeah. I can yeah. see it in your eyes. Yeah. You know, you like people. That's why you're doing what you're doing. So yeah. there'll be other people on this tape tomorrow. You know. Thank you. So thank you. Thanks for sharing all of this. Thank you, everyone. I hope I made some sense. You did. Bye. La Grande Affair. That's right. November 8th. Check it out. Links, everything. All of it's in the bio. Is there anything else you want to add before we wrap on up? No, it's La Grande Affair Deluxe Edition. It's a deluxe you know? edition. It's new because it's it's a reissue with all sorts of new dreamy material. Um, and uh, it's my latest. it's my latest muse. So... I'll keep writing, I'll keep doing, and I'll see you all out there. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Melissa Erico. You've been listening to Entertainment X, the podcast. You can follow Entertainment X on Instagram at underscore Entertainment X underscore. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join Clay next week for another curiosity conversation on Entertainment X. Thank you for listening. <laughs>